Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Neil Shenvey with a reasoned approach to the truth of Christianity. That's how most of us come to realize Christianity is true. We, we hear the gospel, we immediately recognize our own situation. We're like, yes, now I know I messed up. And we also know that, you know, the stuff we're trying to fix our problem, oh, I go to therapy, I do this, I do that. Maybe they're helpful, but they don't address the guilt. They don't address the need. And so we hear the gospel, we think, I know it's true. And that's a rational response. Neil Shenvey, next. Skeptics have long disputed the various claims of Christianity, such as belief in an eternal God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, arguing they can't be accepted by reasonable people. In response, apologist and theoretical chemist Dr. Neil Shenvey engages some of the best contemporary arguments against Christianity in his new book, Why Believe?, a reasoned approach to Christianity. Dr. Shenvey, first, why did you want to add your book into what's already a crowded field of apologetics books? So I actually became a Christian through a book table. Uh, Campus Crusader crew today was handing out copies of the Bible and C.S. Lewis's books, and I took them in and I just grabbed, I was not a Christian, I grabbed C.S. Lewis's books, I recognized his work from Chronicles of Narnia, I thought this is great, free books, So, but I, I read the Screwtape Letters probably 10 or 20 times before becoming a Christian. It was just so meaningful to me. I was like, this is incredible insight into my life. So how does he how does he know that? So that was one major part of me becoming a Christian. And then and then when I was a Christian, uh, I was doing a postdoc at Yale and I was handing out books. And one of them was Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And I, I loved I bought a whole box of them. I gave them away to people that passed by our book table. And but but I, it was getting expensive. And so I thought mm, yeah. I should probably write a book of my own that I can just give out. And that kind of blossomed into why I believe. And um, I think I, I like to, I really, I really liked Keller's book. Uh, so I like to pitch my copy, uh, my book as reason for God for STEM majors, that is for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics type people. It's not super heavy on science per se, but I've heard from some early reviewers and people who enjoy the book that it, my scientific background comes through. It's very systematic. It's very logical. It's very evidence-based, and I definitely do talk about the gospel a lot, but it's it's more for people that are analytical in their thinking. Um, so I think that comes through. And just going back a little bit to how, how you came to Christ, it was when you were actually a student at UC Berkeley. What was it about C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? I mean, you said you read it 20 times because it showed you so much about yourself? Yeah, uh, so it was, that was one big part of my conversion. Another part was just knowing my future wife, Christina, um, who was a Christian, and just getting to know her and realizing that my stereotypes about Christians were wrong, and that she was not this angry moralist or this you know, non-intellectual. She was smart. She was funny. She was uh, normal. She was kind. And just seeing a, just a different way to be intelligent academic, that were, culture was very focused on I don't want to. I don't want to say this. Not, it's not self promotion per se, but just pride, being I'm the best, and showing, proving yourself, and having an identity based on your performance. Whereas she just didn't seem to care that much about herself. She was focused on other things because her identity didn't come from being the best, although she was the best. Mm. Uh, 
at what she did. So um, she was the she actually the reason I knew of her before I even met her was that she was the uh, the person who scored the highest on or organic chemistry class which is a sophomore level class as a freshman at Princeton. Um, yeah. So that was one part. And the other part was uh, then and going to church with her and seeing, you know, my my quantum physics professor attended our church and sang in the choir. And so seeing, again, these stereotype breaking people that were very smart, very intelligent, very kind, and that were also Christian. So the, all of those things made me question whether I could just keep dismissing Christianity because I kind of thought, oh, it's for, you know, not very smart people, not people as smart as me. But then yeah. I was like, well, no, no, these people are much smarter than you, Neil. You got to start grappling with this question. Well, who is Jesus? So that's what led, you know, and I talk about it, this in the book, but it's what led to me considering and embracing the claims of Jesus. What is apologetics? I'm kind of, I've been kind of taking it for granted that people understand what we're talking about. What is it? It's value and it's limits. So apologetics is just the, the defense of the Christian faith through reason and evidence. And its value is really that we're commanded to do it. The Bible says that we should be prepared to give you a reason for the hope for everyone who asks. And, and it does take some practice sometimes. You have to be able to explain, well, why do you think this is true? You have to often be able to answer questions. Um, although I will add that in the book, at the end of it, I, I actually argue that the gospel itself, the message of Jesus' life, his atoning death and resurrection, that that message is evidence, the best evidence, in fact, for Christianity being actually true. And so there's a whole section on that, which is odd because we think of normally, well, I answer people's questions and then later, <laughs> once I've answered their questions, then I share the gospel. Well, no, I argue actually that the gospel itself is the best argument for Christianity being true. And so you don't have to be intimidated if you're like, well, I don't know how to do all this stuff with cosmology and, and, and history and textual criticism. Well, do you know how to tell people about Jesus? Because if you do, as I argue that, that's actually reason for them to embrace the truth of Christianity. Um, but that's that's what it is and its value, because we are, again, we're commanded to, to mm -hmm. be able to do that and explain why we believe what we believe. But then it's limits. Well, you know, it's not the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we can't talk people into God's kingdom. God can use apologetics. Mm -hmm. God can use preaching. God can use ministries of mercy. He can use all those things to draw people to himself. But at the end of the day, it's not our power that we're trusting in to, to make people Christian. I, I wanted to ask something. You say this toward the end of your book, but uh, the, it's actually the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the best evidence that Christianity is true. Yeah, that sounds it's a strange claim. Again, I, I expect Christians to, if, of all people, to be the most surprised when they hear that. Mm -hmm. Because again, we think of, of apologetics as sort of a precursor to sharing the gospel. But I actually argue, no, you can think of, you can actually argue the gospel is itself evidence. And why? Well, uh, it's framed this way. Here's a, an illustration I use in the book. I pick up basketball and I, I suddenly collapse on the court. And everyone kind of gather, gathers around to see what's wrong. And one person says, oh, you know, it's your fine. You trip. Just get up, walk it off. You'll be okay. Another guy says, no, you might have sprained your ankle. I'll get you an ace bandage. Another person runs to grab some Advil from their car. And they're, they're having a discussion about what the best way to treat me is. But while they're discussing that calmly, you know, cheerfully, they, yeah. that woman rushes up to me. And she's frantic. And she says, I am a doctor. I saw what happened. Get this man to an emergency room immediately. His life is in danger. And they look at her like she's crazy. They're like, look, you're overreacting. Are you are you really a doctor? Let me see your credentials, your ID. And she but she turns to me and she looks at me in the eyes and she says, I'm gonna tell you two things. You can't feel your legs and you can't move. 
And the crowd is, again, very incredulous. They say, no, you know, you're just, this is just a simply tripped. Lady, it's a basketball game. You're, you're really being hysterical. But I turn to them and I say, get me to a hospital right now. So they ask me, like, wait a minute. They ask me, that makes no sense. You know, how do you have any, how are you justified in trusting the authority of this random stranger? Why do you, why do you believe her? How can you know that what she's saying is true? And well, I know two things that they don't know. I can't feel my legs and I can't move. Mm. So I have immediate awareness of my condition. And somehow this woman uniquely identified it. She of all these people had the right explanation. She understood things that they didn't know. So I'm obviously justified in believing her. Well, that's the argument I make for Christianity being true. I, I argue, I show that Christianity is unique in making these two claims about our human condition. One, we are all radically in need uh, or radical sinners. We have or radical moral failures. And then two, we need a rescue. We don't just need moral improvement. We don't need to obey the law more closely. We don't just need a religious you know, ceremonies. We need to be rescued. And then I argue, and it's, it takes three chapters, but I argue that actually there's lots of evidence that for those two claims that they are actually true. We are actually radically corrupt and we do need rescue. And if that's the case, so Christianity is unique. I go through all the major world religions and show that Christianity's view of our predicament is is unique and then it's actually accurate. Well, if that's the case, then then we are justified in believing that Christianity is true. And actually, and I also then go on to say, look, that's how most of us come to realize Christianity is true. We, we hear the gospel. We immediately recognize our own situation. We're like, yes, now I know I messed up. And we also know that, you know, the stuff we're trying to fix our problem, oh, I go to therapy, I do this, I do that. Maybe they're helpful, but they don't address the guilt. They don't address the need. And so we hear the gospel. We think this is, I know it's true. And that's a rational response, just like I was rational on the basketball court to think this this message resonates with me in ways that I'm immediately aware of. So that's the argument. Well, the book is Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. My guest is Dr. Neil Shenvey. He uh, is an author, an apologist, uh, and a homeschooling dad of four kids as well. You said, uh, Dr. Shenvey, that there's lots of evidence for those two things that you said make Christianity unique. Uh, the moral corruption in everybody and our need for a rescue. Uh, where do you begin? What is the evidence? So in the book, I go through like multiple lines of evidence. The first would just be a, a survey of human history. Um, there's a great book uh, by Steven Pinker, who's an atheist psychologist at Harvard. It's called The Blank Slate, and he challenges the claim that human beings are blank slates. Where these, you know, we can we can inscribe anything we want onto the human heart. We can change our desires, our thinking, all these. And he says, no, human beings have an indelible nature that's universal to all human beings, all cultures, all people. And part of so there are many things he lists, but one of them is this innate sense of right and wrong. It's there in our hearts. So we know certain. We just know that morality is out there. There's some kind of standard out there. But then, if you look at history, and he says this too, human history is a history of war, mm -hmm. of, of killing, of violence, of rape. It just this all of history drips with warfare. And people used to think, well, that's because of civilization. If we were in a state of nature, we'd all love one another, we'd embrace Mother Earth, and we'd be <laughs> paradise. Well, he actually shows that if you do studies of indigenous tribes throughout the globe, you know, all, which have had very little contact with civilization, with, with, you know, with technology, they're living as hunter-gatherers still. If you look at those tribal groups, uh, 
the level at which they kill each other in warfare dwarfs the bloodiest century in Western quote unquote civilization's history. So uh, the number of the percentage of male deaths during this 20th century in the West was around 2%. So during World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War, all of those deaths made up about 2% of male deaths in the West during those, those that century. In contrast, if you look at indigenous tribes around the world, the, the most peaceful tribe was 8%. So four times as a higher rate of death by warfare than in the 20th century in the West. And the, the highest was like 60% of men died in war. That's the, now the point is not that, oh, those are such bad tribes. No, no, the, the point is civilization restrains the evil in our hearts. It, we're afraid of the government. We're afraid of police. Mm -hmm. So we don't kill and steal and loot like we, like our hearts want to. And, and we you know it's easy to live in the West and say, no, 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 we're not so bad. And yeah, well, there are a lot of novelists, like Lord of the Flies type novels out there thing. You know what? If you pull back the layers, pull back the restraints uh, on civilization, you'll realize there's a lot of darkness there. Then I talk about there's other there's psychological experiments that have been done showing this capacity for human beings to do terrible things. I talk about how title development studies on bullying and kids, how prevalent it is. And then I appeal to people's just self-knowledge. Like the man on the basketball court who knows if he steps and thinks about it, I can't feel my legs. Well, if we think about our lives honestly, alone in a, in a dark room mm -hmm. for like a few minutes and go back and what's the worst thing I've ever, ever done? Not the best, mm -hmm. <laughs> the worst. Like, wow, yeah, that was really bad. And, and I go through again, um, there's a famous thought experiment. I think it was Francis Schaeffer who talked about the idea of imagine if your thoughts were displayed for the world to see for a day. Everyone could hear your thoughts. And it makes you, you really think about the kinds of things that flip through your head and whether you'd want that exposed to like your closest friends and relatives and your, no, you know, your church family, no. Mm -hmm. It makes you realize, yeah, there's so much thing, so much darkness in there that I hide from myself and therefore hide from others. Um, but if you, yeah, so I think through introspection, we can know that there's a really deep, dark part of us and that it has to be fixed. And and all we're doing really is covering it. It's like putting makeup on a corpse. I think C.S. Lewis used that analogy. Uh, and, and we need something more than that. We need new life. So that points us then to the rescue, the state of our own hearts, our own lives, and the state of the world, state of human history points us that if we stay the way we are, we're in trouble. Yeah, and, and I give reasons again, and these are more philosophical and theological, um, but why we don't, why can't we just fix ourselves? Why mm -hmm. can't we just get the, the best government? If we get a good government, then we'll fix, like, well, no, we, we've tried. <laughs> For thousands of years, we've tried different forms of government. Uh, people will, oh, we're going to go live on a commune. We're all going to be nice to each other. It's like, oh, how's that working out, right? <laughs> yeah, how many communes are out there just thriving? It's like they, they all crumble. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they crumble in, in their in their wake. They When you look at the what's happened and they've just dissolved in their internal corruption, scandals, horrifying stuff that went on. And, uh, I think that then the, the theologically, when you think about the, the metaphors the Bible uses for sin, uh, so sin is transgression and sin is slavery. Well, those very metaphors show how hopeless it is to try to erase sin on our own terms. So for example, transgression means breaking a law and the Bible clearly thinks sin's lawlessness. Well, when you break the law, you can't atone for that with 
with obedience to the law. <laughs> imagine like, imagine that you, you know, you, you, you commit murder and they've caught you and you're like, well, I don't see why this one murder should offset all the good stuff I do. They're like, wait, that's not how the law works. <laughs> you're guilty of murder. You, you pay the penalty. Well, the wages of sin is death. And so there's no way, you know, you, you could, you could be perfect your whole life, but one sin given what it, given its wages, what it deserves, it still deserves that thing. He said, well, God will have mercy. Well, okay, fair enough, but it's mercy. It's not justice that you need. And then but more than that, the Bible, I think we can, we can emphasize the judicial aspect of sin and forgiveness, which is fair. Paul does it all the time. Mm-hmm. But Paul also talks about sin as slavery. And the, the word I use, which is, a, which is a more familiar term, I think today would be addiction, that we are sin addicts. Mm-hmm. We can't stop and it's ruining us. And so we don't just need forgiveness judicially. We ha- we get that through Christ, but we also need regeneration. We need to be healed from sin, like an addict needs to be needs to be cured. And so that's again a quote, um, a Rock of Ages, when it talks about you know, be for sin a double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. And the Bible talks about how we need both forgiveness and healing, and Jesus gives both. I'm wondering, Dr. Shenby, if you could talk a bit about the resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead after dying on the cross for our sins. People uh, largely, I think, Christian or not, see that as it is. It's a doctrine. It's a central doctrine, a central belief of the Christian faith. But but you say, but, but it's objectively true. That New Testament authors felt constrained to report what actually happened. You have the testimony of the disciples, the apostles, and then later Paul, and even and James too, Jesus' brother, saying, no, uh, we actually saw him risen from the dead. We, we saw him. We, and, they, and then that's where actually Riza Aslan, who's a Muslim, says, look, they really believed that. How do I know? Because they were, many of them were martyred. They were killed saying, no, we, we touched him. We, we talked to him. Now, people will die for a, a lie. Things, things that they, they, sorry, they will die for things that they, they don't know whether they're true. They trust they're true, but they'll die for them not knowing it's being mistaken. So, for example, the 9-11 terrorists, they died, presumably believing sincerely that Islam was true, mm-hmm. but it was based on their other people's testimony. They were, oh, well, I grew up this way. I, I have faith that it's true. But it's not like they were dying based on, they didn't make that up. They really they really believed that it was true mm-hmm. and they were wrong. Well, in the same way, the fact that these apostles were willing to suffer for years and be persecuted and, and oftentimes be killed for their faith and never recant that suggests strongly they really believed this. And you'll find many skeptics who I quote saying, yeah, they clearly thought that Jesus was risen from the dead. They'd seen him or something. They believe that sincerely. Paul believed it. James believed it. Okay, now wait a minute though. So now you have Jesus died and was buried. The tomb was found empty. And you have all these people, not just one or two, but maybe a hundred people who claim to have seen him 500 at once, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all the testimony saying, no, he really rose from the dead. Now you got to ask, what's the most plausible explanation? And I go through some of the suggestions that non-Christians have put forward, and I argue that no, actually, historically, we can say the best explanation is that God raised Jesus from the dead with one condition, if you believe that God exists. If you, and if you're an atheist, well, you're kind of stuck. You got to go with sort of bad explanations because anything is more plausible if you're an atheist than God raising Jesus from the dead. But if you have some background belief in, well, I think God exists, well, then it's very plausible to think that he'd raise Jesus from the dead. Um, and I, again, I argue for all this, it's very brief, but the point is, I think there is, and I'm not alone in this, even non-Christians will will affirm, some of them will affirm, there is 
a strong argument that can be made for the resurrection on purely historical grounds. And this, of course, is something you've written about a lot in your book, but what would you say is the strongest current and possibly perennial objection to Christianity? One that often comes up is the problem of evil. I have a whole chapter on objections. Um, the problem of evil is, you know, why does, if God exists, if a good, loving, omniscient, omnipotent God exists, why does evil exist? Why doesn't he just end evil? And that's a very, it's an ancient objection to God's existence. And I go through the various responses, um, sort of their general responses that are given by anyone who believes in, uh, you know, a, a good, loving, omnipotent God. They mm -hmm. could answer many ways. They could appeal to human agency. You know, we sin, God doesn't sin, we sin. And then that brings evil into the world and causes the evil, a lot of the evil we see today. You could appeal to things like um, just how some evil, not all of it, but some evil is allowed and permitted by God in order to build our character. I mean, the Bible is full of statements about how grief and suffering produces in us hope, faith, and love. So God allows evil to exist so that we can develop good, better characters. And, and, and that, that could, you could say that as a non-Christian too, but I think the Bible adds a lot more to that discussion. And uh, one big one is eternity. The Bible says we're going to live forever. And so, yeah, evil is a problem, a big problem right now, but one day it will end and then all of eternity, you know, evil's preparing for us. Our suffering's preparing, as Paul says, an eternal weight of glory. We're going to look back on this life and not only will it be a sliver of time, but even the evil we experience will somehow magnify our enjoyment of eternity. And, you know, the example that I use, you know, I had a, a brain tumor removed 12 years ago, emergency mm -hmm. surgery. I easily could have died. I had to say goodbye to my wife and my one-year-old son and my parents and my brother. So it was traumatic, but it was incredibly providentially, praise God, the tumor was taken out successfully. I had no side effects. It was basically benign. Uh, and, and afterwards, my experience of God's love and my gratitude was overflowing. I mean, just spending time with my wife and my, my, my son was just charged with glory because I realized how, how great a blessing they were. Well, that's a little taste of what it will be like looking back on our lives and seeing how God used all of those things to bring us to himself and to rescue us from evil. We'll look back with gratitude and say, this, this is all the sweeter because of what I've been through. Your book is Why I Believe, A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Uh, if you could talk about repentance, what it is, how important it is, and I think you talk about the logic of repentance. Yeah, repentance, the actual, you know, I think it's the Greek word, but um, it basically means turning or changing your mind. And it's not it's not superficial. Oh, I changed my mind. No, it, it actually means, yeah, just radically changing, turning around in your mind. Um, and I, the way I compare it to, what I, what, I, what I point out is that repentance in the Bible, like repentance away, turn, turning from sin and turning to God, is a radical change of mind about the goodness of God and the evilness of sin. You, you just, you, you, your world gets flipped where you're like, I used to think God was bad and sin was good, and now it's completely reoriented, where now I realize, no, that makes no sense. It's actually logical. And I, I point out, think about it. If the Christian view of reality is right, then God is responsible, is the author of every good thing in your life, everything you love that's truly good. He made it. He gave it to you. And, and what is the proper, the only rational sane response is to worship him. 
Mm-hmm. And yet we're like, no, thank you. I'll say no to God and, and turn away from the source of all good and embrace wickedness. That's craziness. So repentance really means coming to your senses. Is like in, in the parable of the prodigal son, the, the younger brother came to his senses. He thinks this is madness. Well, see, if the biblical view of God is true, then repentance is the only proper response to living a life that's centered on anything other than God. Even even good things, when they become ultimate things, are insane because they elevate things that ought to be, you know, the creatures to the status of creator. We have to put God in his place, and that is the only true and good and reasonable response. You write in your book, uh, Dr. Shenvey, that the biggest obstacle for you, and I guess this would go back perhaps when you were considering things, you were, you, you were reading C.S. Lewis, you were studying for your PhD and so forth, uh, the biggest obstacle for you, for you was complete and abject intellectual humiliation. <laughs> Talk about that. How, how, is, how is becoming a Christian all of that? Well, because, you know, I had this caricature of Christians as a non-Christian as, you know, they're just not very smart. They're televangelists wearing, you know, flannel suits and, you know, asking you for money. Right. And they're, they're not, you know, and I was an intellectual. I was sophisticated. I went to an Ivy League university. And, and, Yet I would to be a Christian to say no. I'm going to be a Christian now. Meant it, and I had I had constructed this elaborate spiritual but not religious framework where I believe I believed in God, but He was a God that I could wrap my head around and I approved of. And you know, I mm-hmm. and to say to God, I was completely wrong, and I knew infinitely less about you than some random backwards redneck preacher who, who, who is an eighth grade educator, but he knows you better than I do. I know nothing. And I have to come into your kingdom like a child and be instructed. That you know, that was humiliation in a, in a good sense, though, in the sense that I had to just let go of my pretensions and say, I don't understand you. Teach me. You know, that said, like, and other people have other major mm-hmm. issues, major sins they have to turn over to God. But that was mine. And I had to let go of it and say, I'm going to, like Jesus says, enter the kingdom of God like a little child and just learn and trust and follow um, and, and get over myself. But that was a big obstacle, and, but praise God that he brought me to that point. So your book is Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. If you were to give us just one point as we're nearly concluding here, if somebody said, well, why should I believe? You've given us some good reasons. Would you add anything to that? My, my I think I would just go back to the gospel is that... Um, all of us know we hide it from ourselves we cover it up we 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 put the cover it up with all kinds of entertainment and money and jobs and busyness but we know we're not right not just morally which that's true we definitely are morally wrong we, we do bad things we know it. our conscience bothers us we have things in our past and our present that that are are destroying our souls that's true but we also man you're gonna die one day we, we, it's amazing to me that we d- can deny what everybody knows is true, that we're going to die. That's just a fact. And if you, you're like, here's a question. If you are not a Christian and you no, don't even believe in God, and you are, aren't actively thinking about the fact that you're going to die, you're mortal, you will be dead one day, you're going to face death. Why aren't you living your life in light of that? I mean, that's just not even, that's not a Christian thing. That's like a stoic Greek philosophy, basic, fundamental thing. Why aren't you living life in light of death? And the answer is, I don't want to think about that. Mm-hmm. So so wait a minute here. You're not living in light of reality. You're living in a fantasy world where you're going to live forever. 
that's not even, you don't even know if you're going to die tomorrow or tonight or in five minutes. You're living, ironically, people are like, well, you know, Christianity is like, it's like a living with a pretend imaginary friend in the sky. Well, I'm like, well, look, maybe you think that's the truth, but you're equally living with this fantasy that you're going to live forever, which is not true. <laughs> so I would just say, if you're not a Christian, at least be willing to reflect on reality, which you and I both acknowledge that you're going to die, and then and ask the big questions. Do not bury them beneath movies and television and going to nightclubs and having fun and friends. Stop all that stuff. Sit down and think. I would commend to you, sit with an open Bible. Read the, if you've never read the Bible, open up the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus' life. Just read it. He's a, he's a historical figure. He had some really interesting things to say. No one denies that. But let him challenge you. you just Are you willing to do that? Are you, are you take a risk and say, I'm going to at least hear what he has to say? You're not going to regret it. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, apologist and theoretical chemist, Dr. Neil Shenvey, author of Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Colin Smith on getting the most from our Bible reading times. Open the Word of God, read a few verses, try and find a verse that will stay with you for the day, a promise that you can hold on to, a command that you can pursue, perhaps a warning that you need to heed, mm -hmm. but find something that you can hold on to, take it with you, and perhaps hand it on to someone else as well. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening. <laughs>